Thank you again. You may be seated. At this time, Miss Amy is to my left and your right. If you have children that would like to go to Children's Church, I know that she would love to have the kids with her this morning. I know some have probably already met out in the hallway. It is such a blessing to be able to worship with each of you today. Thank you for choosing to make Sunday morning the place to be at Trinity Wesleyan Church. I also want to thank you, Mary Beth Bagley, for the work that you do on the mission field. And we don't get to hear from missionaries all that often. It is a blessing to be able to hear from you. So often we can become so focused on the things that are happening in the local church that we fail to recognize that the kingdom work goes on far beyond the four walls of the church. Instead, it were, it, it, the Spirit is working all over the place. Thank you for just giving us a glimpse of that today. I also want to take a moment and note that this is a special day even for our nation. And sometimes we maybe take this for granted just a little bit, but today is the National Right to Life Sunday. Yesterday, thousands of people gathered in Washington, D.C. to stand up for the life of unborn children all around the world. Others have been gathering at similar events all across the country for the past several weeks. In fact, even some of you went and participated recently down in Colombia. I remember years ago hearing someone ask why the fight against abortion is so important to the church. And it's a really good question, but I also have a really good answer. If I knew that millions of people were being killed in some far-off land, wouldn't I do whatever I could to try to stop that from happening? Isn't that exactly what the world collectively did when Hitler systematically sought to annihilate the Jews? And the answer is absolutely. World War II took place because one individual was trying to kill off an entire ethnic group. Looking back, our world unanimously declared that what we did then was right. Guess what? Standing up for those who cannot stand up for themselves is still right. That's the reason we stand up against abortion. And that's the reason we stand up even for adoption. That's the reason we cannot stop speaking up for those who cannot speak for themselves. So I challenge you as a church. By the way, we celebrate some of the decisions that have been made over the last year. But don't be fooled into thinking that it's over. This is still something we need to be praying about, and we need to continue to stand for the unborn child. All right, none of that has to do with my message today, but I think it's important for us to recognize those things. Over the past three weeks, we've been focusing on the biblical celebration of what's known as the Year of Jubilee. It's actually recorded in the book of Leviticus chapter 25, and today we're going to continue to look at this Year of Jubilee. So far, we have seen that it was an opportunity for God's people to slow down, to refocus on the Lord. Some might suggest that the forced shutdown of everything beginning at the beginning of COVID had a similar effect to what happened in the year of Jubilee. 
It forced people to take a break from their busy lives and instead to simply focus on relationships that had potentially been neglected for too long. Those relationships might include a relationship with your family. Some of us became so focused on our work that our family kind of took a back seat and all of a sudden we had to be at home and now actually what happened to a lot of people is they realized how little they liked each other. The other side is they began to realize how much they needed each other and relationships began to grow. The other part of this, another relationship that hopefully people were able to focus a little more on was their relationship with the Lord. What's funny about it is that for so many of us, we sat there longing for things to get back to normal. I guess that would be kind of like the Israelites sitting around longing for the 51st year to start so they could get back to normal. The way the year of Jubilee worked was every seven years there was a break. It was called a Sabbath, even for planting. So on, you'd work for six years, the seventh year, you take a break. Give the fields a break. Seven years, 14, 21, 28, 35, 42, 49 years. Well, then in the 50th year, what would happen is everybody took a year just to focus on the Lord. So 49 and 50, you're, you're not working. And by the time you're done with the 50, how many of y'all have ever been on vacation? And by the end of vacation, you're thinking, oh, I'm so ready to get home to get back to what I normally do. Well, 49 and 50 years now, you are working or nothing. You're, you're basically relaxing. You're focusing. You're not doing the things you did before. By the time the end of that 50th year came, people were ready to work. But I wonder sometimes if we'd be better off not getting back to normal. I wonder if God wanted the people not to so eagerly look forward to year 51, but rather to cherish the opportunity that had been sitting in front of them in year 50 and to draw nearer to the Lord than they had ever been able to do so before. That is my prayer for each of you this year as we as a church have focused on the year of Jubilee. We also looked at the fact that the Lord is the one who provides for our every need. And I do think that most people realize that, even those outside of the church. But what is most alarming is that many of us want God to provide for our every need, but we want it on our terms. If you'll remember, I talked about the apparent absence of the Holy Spirit among the church today. Yet it is through the Holy Spirit that we actually receive all that we need. But what's happened is we've just focused on being good and doing the right things. And, and you know what? It's good to be good. It's good to do the right things. But I'm going to tell you, we cannot do it on our own. The Holy Spirit has to be the one to help us. Then this past week, Pastor Colby did such a great job of presenting the opportunity of freedom that is available to each of us. So many of us have been enslaved or imprisoned by an addiction to sin, yet we don't have to stay that way. The truth is that God longs to set us free. Well, today I want us to continue by answering an important question about ownership. 
I was watching one of the police documentary shows that's on TV all the time nowadays. I was watching one recently and a question of ownership arose regarding a bicycle. One individual accused the other of stealing their bicycle, yet there was no clear evidence to identify which individual actually owned the bicycle. There were no serial numbers, no receipts, no witnesses to confirm ownership. It was simply one person's word against another. And both individuals were very passionate about the fact that it was their bike. As it happens so most often with me nowadays, I had to get up before that show ended. So I actually didn't get to see the resolution. I, I don't know which individual got to keep the bike that day. Maybe it would have been good for the officer to just cut the bike in half and give each one half of it, similar to what we see Solomon offering to do earlier in Scripture. But what I can remember was the helpless position that the officer found himself in. How could he know for sure who owned what? Today's passage begins with a declaration about ownership. And I want to read it to you. Again, we're in Leviticus chapter 25. And today I'll be reading beginning in verse 23, reading through verse 28. This is what it says. The land must not be sold permanently because the land is mine. And you reside in my land as foreigners and strangers. Throughout the land that you hold as a possession, you must provide for the redemption of the land. If one of your fellow Israelites becomes poor and sells some of their property, their nearest relative is to come and redeem what they have sold. If, however, there is no one to redeem it for them, but later on they prosper and acquire sufficient means to redeem it themselves. They are to determine the value for the years since they had sold it and refund the balance to the one to whom they sold it. They can then go back to their own property. But if they do not acquire the means to repay, what was sold will remain in the possession of the buyer until the year of Jubilee. It will be returned in the Jubilee, and they can then go back to their property. Now, last week, Colby talked about people being restored. And much of this passage that I just read is about land being restored as well. But I want to focus today on this statement regarding ownership that we found at the very beginning of this. Again, I want to read verse 23 one more time to you. The land must not be sold permanently because the land is mine and you reside in my land as foreigners and strangers. There are so many applications to this. And although I have rarely heard any pastors preach on the year of Jubilee, I have heard the principles that are addressed in here often preached from the pulpit. The first thing that I want you to see this morning is that everything you have, the land and everything in it, it belongs to God, not to you. There's a country music song that came out a couple years ago that was entitled God's Country. Well, long before Blake Shelton sang about God's country, the people of Israel were reminded that the land in which they lived was actually God's country. 
there is a literal application to this as well. Remember that this is the book of Moses that we're reading from. And the book of Moses was actually recorded prior to the Israelites entering the promised land. The reason we know that, Moses didn't make it into the promised land. The book of Moses, Leviticus, was actually written while they are journeying. They have been held captive in Egypt for hundreds of years. They have been set free and now they are wanderers. They do not have a place to call home, but they are preparing to enter into the promised land. And sure, they will have a role in taking possession of this land, but this land that was about to be their land, God's the one who actually would make that possible. For example, when the Israelites overtake the city of Jericho, it would not be because of their supreme fighting abilities, nor their brilliant battle plan that would lead them to victory. Instead, it would be the miraculous work of God to decimate the walls of Jericho. So who would deserve credit, ownership of that land? The people who simply received God's blessing or the God who made all of it possible. That land is God's land. But even if God had not been the one who granted them the victory, it seems pretty safe to say that God owned it first. Genesis tells us that God created the heavens and the earth. That means that as the creator of all things, the land was his before it was theirs because they weren't even around yet. Now let me just say that I am one of those where I am very grateful for the land in which we live. I'm very grateful for the freedoms that we have and even the prosperity that is available within our land. But let me also say that this land does not truly belong to us. It belongs to God. This is his blessing. Do not take for granted the freedoms and all the things that you have in this land. This land belongs to him. He simply chose to put you in a great place. There was a golf course near us where I lived in Burlington, North Carolina. It was called Shamrock Golf Course. I had a conversation one day with the owner, and he shared with me that he didn't actually own the land. Instead, his family had been given a 99-year lease on that land. He then developed the land for this golf course, and one day that land will revert back to the actual land owner. Well, in a manner, this land is on lease to us, and one day we will no longer be here, but the Lord will still be here, and this will still be his land. Now, maybe you're wondering where I'm going with all of this. Let me suggest that just as the land belonged to God rather than the people, everything else that we have also belongs to God rather than us. So hold on to the land and all that it contains loosely. Be grateful for the things that God has done, but recognize that it's just on loan to us. Even this morning as we have celebrated two beautiful little babies. Those children are on loan to us. 
God is the one who created them, who designed them in their mother's womb. God is the one who had a plan for them even before they were conceived. They are God's children. We have a responsibility to care for them and to take care of them in such a way that God would be pleased. But they are God's children and he simply entrusted us to care for them. I love the way that it's worded in our passage. Again, verse 23 says, the land must not be sold permanently because the land is mine. And you reside, listen to this, you reside in my land as foreigners and strangers. What this means is that we are merely guests in his land. Have you ever had company over to your house? When they come, don't you allow them to use your things? to eat at your table, to sit on your couch, to watch your TV, even to use your toilet paper? Or do you tell them that they need to bring their own? They are your guests, and therefore you provide for them while they're there. We live in his land, and everything in this land belongs to him. He is merely allowing us to use it. In Matthew 25, Jesus tells a story that deals with both ownership and stewardship. Listen to it for a moment. I won't read all of it because it's actually about 25 verses, but listen to just a few verses. Again, Matthew 25, beginning verse 14. For it would be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted them to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one to each according to his ability. Then he went away. Again, the ownership issue is addressed from the very first verse there. It said that he entrusted to them his property. He doesn't give each one the same amount, but rather, as we see later, he gives according to what they could handle. It actually said in that verse, according to each one's ability. The one with five talents will double that. He'll end up with 10. The one with two will double that. He'll end up with four. The one who receives one does nothing but hide the money. And he is rebuked and punished in the end. Have you ever thought about why the last guy only received one talent in the first place? I know it says because of their abilities, but maybe they all could do something with what they have. Seems a little bit unfair. Why didn't all of them receive the same things? First, let me say that God never promised to be fair. He promised to be just, but he never promises to be fair. In this parable, it is the wealthy man's money, so it's his to give in whatever way he should see fit. It's like another parable that Jesus tells about a wealthy vineyard owner who went out to hire workers. He goes early in the morning and he hires them and they are pleased to know that they will receive a day's wage. A little bit later in the day, realizing all the work will not be done, he goes back out again to hire more workers. A little bit later in the day, realizing that there's still more work to be done, he goes out and he hires again, all the way until almost the very end of the day. And then it comes time for the workers to be paid, and he begins with those who came in last, and he gives them a full day's wage. Just to be completely honest with you, That's very, very generous. 
to think that God would allow one who came in at the very end to receive the full blessing is overwhelmingly generous. Then the next group comes up to get theirs. In the back of their mind, they're thinking to themselves, man, we're going we're gonna to make a lot of money today. Imagine being the one you showed up early in the morning before the sun rose and you got hired. You've worked all day. These guys showed up. They worked for an hour. They got a full day's wage. I wonder how much we're going to get. But this wealthy owner gives each of them the same amount. Here's the thing. It's his to give. I've often thought, this is not in my sermon, sorry. I'm just off track here a little bit. I've often thought of those who have surrendered their lives to Christ at the very end of their life. How unfair that seems. I know that pastors aren't supposed to say that, are we? An individual lived their whole life, and at the very end, right before they die, they surrender their lives to him. It seems so unfair that they get all the blessings that we do when we get to heaven. But what a blessing that is. I have family members that are in heaven today not because they proved themselves to be faithful for decades, but rather because, I call it slipping in the back door of heaven. They slipped in the back door of heaven. Absolutely. Tell you the truth, I actually, my heart breaks for those who wait until the end. Because here I am, I've been serving the Lord now since 1990. And I can attest to the fact that my God is very good. He has blessed me all along the way and he will continue to do so. I think they're getting cheated because they're choosing not to be a part of the body of Christ until later. I am so glad my God is generous in what he gives to us. I hope you recognize how generous he is to you. It's his money and it's his gift of life. And if he chooses to give it, man, we ought to celebrate it. There's another part to this as well. Is it possible that the wealthy man in our first parable, that he gave one five, one two, and the other one based on what he had seen in them already? Absolutely, it's, it's possible. And by the way, this isn't just about money, even though sometimes we look at it as being about money. This is about being a blessing and using what God gave you. I remember years ago, I was in a conversation with one of the moms from our church in Colorado. She was a great lady. And as we're mid-conversation, her daughter, probably about six or seven, walked in and she asked if she could go outside and play. The mom said, well, just you can go outside, but just know you've got family coming over and they're going to be staying with you and your room still needs to be clean. So you can go outside, but realize you've got responsibilities you need to do. As she's saying that, I'm thinking, what are you doing? And here's the reason. If my mom would have ever told me that, you know what I'd have done? I'd have been outside playing. All right, cool. I'll do it when I get back later. And I'd have gone out and done stuff. So the, the little girl listened. She said, you know what, I should probably go clean my room. And she walked back in her room to clean. So I asked her, what are you thinking? She said, I could not have done that with my older son. If I'd have done that with my older son, he'd have been gone just like me. But I did it with her because she's different from him. The reality is God looks upon us and he knows who we are. 
because he's seen all those things in our hearts and he can't deal with each of us equally because we're different from each other. God has blessed you in certain ways. He has blessed you in certain ways. He has blessed you in certain ways. And he's done so uniquely because he knows who you are. Part of that's because hopefully we have shown him how faithful we are. He who has been given much, much will be expected. He who is faithful with a few things will be given more. I challenge you to make sure that you are worthy of God's blessing so that he can bless you and give you more even than what you have received already. Let's get back to our passage. The land and everything in it belongs to the Lord. And likewise, everything that you and I possess also belongs to the Lord. This is a point that so often pastors will preach on stewardship. I don't have time to do that right now, but I will keep this brief. If God has given you 100% of what you have, him requiring 10% back is not that much. It's still very generous. So be a good steward. That's my stewardship message to you. But what if it's not just the land and all the things that God owns? What if his ownership extends to you? Listen to a few verses that deal with this. Romans 14, verse 7 through 9 says, For none of us lives for ourselves alone, and none of us dies for ourselves alone. If we live, we live for the Lord. And if we die, we die for the Lord. So whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. John 1, 12, To all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. That, the word of indicates ownership. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us, and we are his. We are his people, the sheep of his pasture, according to Psalm 100, verse 3. Isaiah 43, verse 1 says, Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by my name. You are mine. And Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 6, 19, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. First John 4, you belong to God, my dear children. Second Corinthians 1, he has identified us as his own by placing the Holy Spirit in our hearts as the first installment that guarantees everything he has promised us. I got two more for you. Galatians 3. There is no longer Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And now that you belong to Christ, you are the true children of Abraham. You are his heirs, and God's promise to Abraham belongs to you. Romans 8.15. Paul said, so you have not received a spirit that makes you fearful slaves. Instead, you received God's spirit when he adopted you as his own children. Now we call him Abba, Father. You know, one of the verses that I just read to you came from 1 Corinthians chapter 6. In it, we are told that we were bought with a price which basically means you are under new management. 
In the days of slavery in the United States, it was possible for a slave to be redeemed if somebody else were willing to pay whatever that price might be. The price was typically set according to how much a slave would bring in in service. If the slave were physically fit or well-skilled at something, the redemption price would typically go higher. The slave owner himself realized, I can make a bunch of money off of this guy because of all the things that he can do. Someone else wants to come and buy him, well, I'll sell him to you, but you're going to pay a steep price. But if you wanted the slave bad enough, you could pay the price. Well, Jesus paid the price for you and I to be set free. And it was a great price. The wage of sin, according to all the way back in Genesis, all the way up into the book of Romans, we see the wage of sin has always been death. And Jesus paid that debt by giving his own life so that your sins could be forgiven, so that you could be set free. What that means is you are no longer owned by sin. Sin is no longer your master. You now belong to him. There are three points of application I want to leave you with this morning. The first is this. Please note that God has been very good and generous to you. God has given you more than you could ever ask or imagine and certainly more than you ever deserved. Do not take that for granted. Look at all the things that you have today. Perhaps you have a family, a place to live, food on your table, a job. You have friends. Be thankful for those blessings. God has been very good to you. But you also must know that just as God has given you so many things, you are actually the blessing to God. I told you already that you were bought at a great price. God sent his son to die for your sins. You'd have to be pretty valuable, pretty special for me to allow my son to die for you. But that is exactly what God did for you. Please don't underestimate the value that God has placed on you. The world tells us our worth so often, and they're wrong. They look at what we can do. They look at our abilities. They look at how beautiful or less than beautiful we may be. But God says, I've already determined your worth. You're worth everything to me. Do you recognize how much God loves you today? Finally, those who are so deeply loved by God those who have been offered freedom from your old master, sin, as those who now belong to him, to him, I invite you to be changed. Your old master led you to addiction. He led you to defeat. He led you to regret, led you to pain, led you to so many things that you look back and you think, I can't believe I was that kind of person. The old master was not one that anybody would want to serve, but so many people have chosen to. 
The problem for me is we have so many who are in the body of Christ today. They knelt at an altar and they prayed and said, God, forgive me of my sins. Yet they continue to live this life as if they still have the same master that they had before. They continue to do the things that the old master wanted of them. And the new master says, but I set you free. I gave you the opportunity to be new, to be different, to no longer be in bondage, to no longer have to live in defeat and regret and shame. I gave you the opportunity to be set free. We don't need to do the same things that we used to do. So I challenge you today to live as one who has been set free. Maybe today you haven't been set free and you continue to live in bondage to the same sins that have plagued you all your life. I want you to know there is a way out and it is through Jesus Christ. If you would bow your heads with me. Father, as we come before you today, Lord, we know that our only hope is in you. We know that you have offered us redemption. You have paid the redemption price, I guess because you must really love us a lot. Father, help us to never take that love for granted. I pray right now that each of us would know that we are fully loved by you. Maybe there are others who have not loved us the way they should have. May we know your personal love to us today. Perhaps there are those in here this morning that have never surrendered their lives to you. They're still living enslaved to their old master. Sin still has mastery over them. And they feel like there's no way out. Lord, I pray right now that you would set them free. Just as we pray that you would forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness, I pray right now that you would set us free so that we would no longer have to walk in bondage to something that was never intended for us in the first place. Father, I pray today that we would find freedom in your son, Jesus Christ. And I do pray that you would give us the ability to stand up and to fight and not to give up. I pray that your spirit would rest upon us, that our lives would be changed, that the thoughts of our hearts would change, that everything we do would reflect the spirit's presence in our lives moving forward. Lord, I pray today that you, would take over as our new master. And I pray that as you do, that truly we could become your instruments to change this world. But we believe that this land belongs to you and everything in it, including us. Lord, may you be honored in the way we live for you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I want you to know today that God has a plan for you. He loves you. He desires to do great things in and through you. Part of it is just realizing where you stand. He's the master. You live like he's the master. He's in charge. Thank you so much for being with us this morning. Go in peace.